0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So imagine being one of the most famous football players in the NFL. And let's just say that you'd had a really hard day, and so you went home and hit the bottle a little too heavy and had way too much to drink, and then you decided to do something extremely stupid, which is often what much drink will do. You decided to drive home from where you had been drinking, and on the way home, you spot one of those checks where they are testing for driving under the influence, and you know exactly what's going on. and you're extremely intoxicated. So you see it ahead of you about 20 feet and you're like, oh no. And so immediately you just turn in the nearest driveway. And so as you pull into the nearest driveway, of course, some man comes out of his house and begins to approach your vehicle. And he, he just really begins to ask, you know, what are you doing here? And so you tell him, well, listen, I've had way too much to drink, and just right up here, you can see there's those officers and those police cars there, and you tell him, well, I know if I go up there, I know I'm going to get pulled over. I know probably most likely I'm going to go to jail because I know I've had this problem before, and I have some, some incidents already, and then you tell the man, you go, well, by the way, I mean, come on, don't you recognize who I am? <laughs> I mean, like, I am the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. I mean, don't, don't you know who I am? And then the man says, well, you know, that's good. And, and no, I didn't necessarily know, but I think I know who you are. But what's most important is do you know who I am? The quarterback says, well, no, I don't know. Tell me, who are you? He goes, well, I'm actually the police sergeant who <laughs> has scheduled that, that, that test that's right up there. Can you imagine uh-oh <laughs> Can you imagine what begins to go through your head? Well you know, as humorous that as that is, or maybe oh, me as that is. I think sometimes in our lives, we think that we can outsmart. We can use position or power. We can come up with clever decoys. We can try to pretend we can do lots of things to try to get away with our sin. But the Bible tells us that there's always going to be judgment on our sin. Now, hang with me, because it isn't all doom and gloom. (laughs) What I want to tell you today is is we can't escape judgment on sin, and as a matter of fact, we won't. If you've been with us, we've been in Daniel, the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 5 yet again this morning. And last week, we began to look at a new king that's arrived on the scene, and his name is Belshazzar, and he's a, he's a king who simply thinks that he can escape judgment upon his sin. And here's how he, he does it. He simply just chooses not to believe in the God of Israel. He's like, if I just don't believe in the God of Israel, certainly then there would be no sin, and therefore there would be no judgment. But that's not going to work either. And last week, we began looking at some principles. There are five of them. We looked at one last week. We'll look at the other four this morning about what the Bible really talks about in Daniel chapter five about judgment on sin. Last week, we covered this. We said, the Lord sees and contemplates our sin. The Lord sees and contemplates our sin. We learned that last week. We talked about that he sees the sins of indulgence, how, how this man, this king in verses one through four had invited a thousand of his nobles He had all of his concubines there. There was lots. It says he drank. There was lots of drunkenness, lots of immorality, but he was just indulging in the sins of the flesh. And then we also seen that the sins of indifference, then it began to be that he knew and could see that some things were starting to happen. There was some handwriting that started to show up on the wall, but because he didn't care And he already knew that God had judged the king previous to him. He just was indifferent to the fact that maybe God would judge him. And then we also saw the sins of irreverence. Then he decided to go into the place where the the vessels of God had been stored from where they took them from Jerusalem. And he brought those out and he filled them with all this kind of wine and and they just kind of drank and and got drunk. And then they worshiped their own gods made of clay and and wood and and different iron and and different ores and, and metallic elements. And we just saw that this is the sin of irreverence, that he would take the things of God and just worship his own gods with them. And then we took time to talk about sin happens when we don't worship God as God. We don't see that God is God and we just simply tend to believe differently or just think differently of Him. When we don't see Him as holy, that's when sin happens. But then we briefly touched on that sin happens when we take the things meant for worshiping God and use them for our own purposes. So he took those vessels that were meant for the worship of God. They were the, 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 the goblets that would be used to, to give a holy drink offering before God. But he took those and, and used it for his own purposes. And so we made the application that we do that sometimes with our own talents, the things that, that God has given us, the skills that God has given us. And he's meant to, to use those for his glory, but yet we use them for our own. And then we talked about our resources. And I talked about this. You know, I talked about that, that God's all given us These this source of income, God's given us these sources of financial blessing and resources, and God says that we're supposed to use those and give a tithe back to God. But a lot of times we don't tithe and we keep it for ourselves and for us. That that is sin. That's exactly what God says. And then we also talked about sexual sin. We talked about how that our bodies are supposed to be used for edification and honor. That we're not supposed to defraud one another or take advantage of one another sexually. Because this, this is meant to be a temple that's meant to be honored. And, and other people's bodies are supposed to be honored. And when we do that, we're taking the things that God meant for his service and we're using it. And so this morning, I want us to look at the four remaining truths about the judgment on sin. Now that we're kind of back together. And Tim, what I want to do is, is I'm just going to read the first um, five verses this morning. And then we're going to jump out of it, okay? Just a word back there to you guys. So uh, this morning, as uh, I was sitting in adult Bible study, uh, and my teacher, man, just does a a great job. Hopefully you can be in one of those. They start at 9.15 on Sunday mornings. They're just extremely helpful. But my, my teacher said, hey, let's turn and open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. And it was in that moment that God reminded me that, man, I'm opening His holy word. Like this, this isn't any other book. Like this isn't any other person speaking. Like this is God speaking. And, and it's just the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and said, Steve, this is my living, breathing disclosure of who I am to you. Treat this as holy. And I was just so reminded. So, in that same spirit, I wonder if you just stand to your feet as we just honor because God is speaking. Not because I am, but just because God is speaking. We're in Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pockets of the seats underneath those seats. Uh, Please, man, uh, use that. Uh, Pastor Justin, who prayed for offering, if you want to talk to him, he'll give you a Bible, not those. You could take those, but we have better Bibles that we can give to you. Please see him if you need one. But the Bible says this. It says, Belshazzar the king held a feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this party is rocking. Then in verse five, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Holy Spirit, may you bring illumination to our hearts. May you bring enlightenment to our minds. And may God, you give us the wisdom to know what to do with your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the second thing. Not only does the Lord see and contemplate our sin, but the Lord speaks to and confronts our sin. The Lord speaks to and confronts our sin. all of a sudden, he's living this, living it up. He's sinning heavily against God, and it's almost like God hadn't said anything. Like he's just going to kind of get away with it, but God begins to speak. And, but God begins to write something on the wall. I mean, all of a sudden, the music stops. The immoral physical activity stops. There's handwriting that's on the wall. And the, the king, the Bible says literally in the Hebrew, well, actually Aramaic in this point, it says this, that he literally shrieks out loud. See, you and I need to know that God will not be silent about our sin. He will speak to and confront us about our sin. And when he does, we're probably going to have one of the following responses. First of all, we may have a response of fault. We may have the response of fault. Look in verse 5 and 6. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand and the plaster on the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then... Verse six says, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. You see, the Babylonians there, they're having this great feast and they're simply out of touch with reality. And sin does that to us. It makes us dull. As a matter of fact, I would say that sin makes us stupid. But Sinclair Ferguson, a commentator, says this. He said, Belshazzar is perhaps the supreme Old Testament parable, a parallel to the rich fool in Jesus, Jesus' parable. He said, having already given expression to their lust for more, in the case of the rich fool, his lust for more money, they would never be satisfied without more. Blinded of pursuit of that lust, they were oblivious to the fact that the parable tells us that this night your soul will be required of you. And so what he's basically saying is is that Nebuchadnezzar had gotten so comfortable that he thought he wasn't going to die, he wasn't going to be overcome, his kingdom was going to be okay, because if there was a God, and there was a God that was upset with him, that God hadn't said anything yet. So he had no fault. There was nothing. He He was faultless before God. But immediately the king is brought to his senses, right? And here's what I believe happened. I'm sure that this was the quickest sobering any man has ever experienced. He went from a drunken stupor to paying real close attention. He's been yanked back into reality and he realizes, oh no, I'm at fault. Let me tell you why I know that he's at fault. Why that his face grows pale and why his knees begin to knock. Here's why I'll tell you this. Why didn't he interpret this as if there is a God, this God speaking to me to give me victory over my enemies? Why does he grow pale? Why does his knees begin to knock? Why does he shriek out? Because simply this, you and I know this to be true, because we process everything according to our conscience. In the garden, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they hid from God. Why would they hide from this loving God? Because their conscience had had been violated. They knew they were at fault. They had sinned against God, and so therefore they hid from God. When King Herod hears about Jesus on the scene, he believes that he has to be John, risen from the dead. Why? Because he had recently beheaded John, and his conscience was deeply convicted. In our lives, the the phone rings, and you think, oh, no, (laughs) no. I now know that they know and they're calling me to talk about it. Someone looks at you and you've been out doing something that you shouldn't have done and you think nobody knows, but you walk into a room and it's somebody that you know is kind of familiar with their life and they just they look at you and they kind of linger for a moment and you're like, oh, no. Oh, no, they know. You know why? Because, because we interpret things according to our conscience. And this king begins to have this response because he realizes, because when God speaks to and confronts your sin, your response may be, oh no, I'm at fault. Secondly, you may have the response of fear. Not only fault, but fear. Verse 6, he says, the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. His face color changes from being red from wine to now white as a sheet. And let me just go ahead and tell you this. You know this to be true. When somebody's afraid, you can see it all over their face. When, When fear begins to set in, it's all over our faces. And when God speaks to you and when God begins to confront my sin or your sin, one of the responses is it may be this overwhelming sense of fear that, oh, no God knows but then I may have a response of franticness may have the response of franticness in verse 6 it says man his thoughts alarmed him his hip joints go slack in verse 9 if you'll look down in the text it says then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and now his nobles are perplexed his mind goes into panic mode he becomes frantic He's freaking out. The the Bible literally says in the text, it literally says that the knots of his loins were loosed. To keep it clean, I'm just going to leave it right there. Y'all know what happened. And I'm going to try to keep it PG. I'm just telling you something happened in that moment. He did something in his pants. That's about all I'm going to say. I'm just trying to tell you, he completely freaked out because when, listen, not when man speaks, not when your conscience speaks, but when God speaks, it'll freak you out you won't be able to say, oh, I can push that off. When God speaks to, and he will, about our sin, gone now was this proud and sneering scorn that he had for Israel, the God of Israel. He was shaking, his thoughts were troubling him, his conscience was killing him, because God had spoken, and Belshazzar, now the one who didn't even believe in the God of Israel, knew for sure that this God had spoken to him, and he freaks out. There was a message by his head, it's by the very finger of God, and when god speaks and confronts our sin we will become frantic but then maybe you would have the response of false faith verse 7 it tells us the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers the calteans and the diviners and then he calls on the wise men of babylon and then in verse 8 it says the king's wise men they came in but they couldn't read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king So as we've seen over and over and over again, he calls back in those religious and spiritual people who should be able to help. But just like every other time they've been asked to do something, they can't help. And isn't it amazing how many times people get spiritual when there's life and death on the line? It's been said, and and being a former war veteran in the room, that there are no atheists in a foxhole. Here's the truth, guys. Unless we turn to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're never going to find what we're looking for. False religion had failed him and it will fail you too. And so when God speaks, you may turn to some false religion kind of faith. You may turn to some false kind of religion. You may turn to some false kind of hope that something, some type of a a Ouija board or some type of tarot reader, or just even just turning to the newspaper and looking at the horoscope, there's got to be something better. Or going to a church where they don't preach the gospel or preach Jesus, but you're just looking for someone, somewhere to help. And that's what we do when God speaks. We try to turn somewhere. Maybe it's a false faith, but then... Maybe we have the response of favor. Response of favor. Look there in verse 7, the latter half. So the king speaks and he says to the wise man, he says, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me. Now watch, here's the favor. Shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. You see, when we hear God speak, often... We want to do anything that we can to try to appease now our guilty conscience. So what we'll do is, is we'll try to turn to others, try and buy or, or earn or beg for or enlist the help of others to get us out of the situation that we're in our offers position, right? He says, hey, you'll be clothed with purple. That meant that you would now have royalty and you could be elevated. You would be given a higher position because only the nobility would wear purple. And then he offers him possessions. You'll be given this, this chain of gold. Like, now you'll be rich. Just help me. <laughs> Or power, you'll be made third in the kingdom because my relative who's out of the country is really ruling this thing. I'm the vice regent. We'll put you third in charge. And we do this. We we offer people position or we offer them possessions or power to help settle our conscience because God has spoken and he is confronting our sin. We offer people whatever it takes to try and relieve our guilt. But God has written on the wall, Belshazzar had been confronted by the living God and he now rightly trembles. And when God brings a man or a woman to the end of themselves, he smashes everything that you are depending on. It's an opportunity for you to turn to him and receive his mercy. You see, when the Lord speaks to our sin, he confronts it head on. And we have varying responses. But you see, if you and I don't turn from our sin, it just keeps getting worse because there's the next thing that happens. The Lord only sees and contemplates and then he speaks to and he confronts, but then the Lord shows us and convicts us of our sin. He will show you exactly what it is and he will convict you. How does that look like? Well, he might show you that you can be guilty of preventing the Spirit. You can be guilty of preventing the spirit. Look in verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the, king, the queen spoke and said, "O oh king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Now, this is the queen mother. And, and what most scholars tell us is this is the wife of Nebuchadnezzar who had, who had died over in chapter 4. Her name is Natachris. She's really Belshazzar's grandmother through marriage. And there's tremendous irony in what she says. She says, oh, king, live forever. And this king isn't even going to live another hour. Verses 11 and 12. She says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians and conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And then she says, this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniels, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation." Now, we learn this about Daniel over in Daniel chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 18. We know that Daniel has insight. He has enlightenment into the things of God. He knows the very heart of God. He has the knowledge of God in his word. He knows God, and he knows very intimately the things of God. He has this ability to interpret dreams, and he certainly, certainly then could explain to anybody this handwriting that's on this wall. King, he can help you solve the problem that you're facing. But you see, King, it's probably too late for you because God has spoken and you've been ignoring it and you've been denying the power of his Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And now it's time for conviction. See, you've known about Daniel because your grandfather, you saw what happened, and you knew exactly what God did to him because of his sin, and now you know, and the Holy Spirit has been convicting you, and you've chosen to ignore it, so now it's time for God to show you exactly what he's going to do and why he's going to do it, and he's going to bring conviction, but yet in your mockery, in your blasphemy, in your intentional desire to show the God of Israel what you think of him, you have prevented the Holy Spirit of God to use the man- Man of God with the word of God in your life. See, beloved, what we all need is someone who knows how to get in touch with the God of the universe and his word. And I'm begging you today, don't wait until God has to speak. Don't wait until God has to bring his judgment on your life. Avail yourself now to the people of God who know the word of God. You see, unless we're looking to the, to the God of the Word and the Word of God, we will be guilty of preventing the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does because the Holy Spirit of God does this. God takes the man of God or the woman of God with the Word of God through the Spirit of God to communicate the heart of God to the people of God. And When we don't pay attention to what God has already been speaking, then the next thing God speaks is our conviction. It is too late at that point. It just keeps getting worse. So I may be guilty of preventing the Spirit, and then I also may be guilty of premeditated sin. Premeditated sin. You know, in a court case, man, when it's premeditated murder, the penalty is a whole lot worse than if it was just manslaughter. Verses 13-22, through very quickly, they say these things. Then Daniel was brought before the king The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the the exiles from Judah? (laughs) Wow, way to go, way to lift him up. Who my father, the king, brought from Judah? Well, now you know who he is. Why are you asking who he is? I've heard about you, hmm. That there's a spirit of the gods in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Well, if that's true and you knew that, why hadn't you called him in before now? Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me But they could not declare the interpretation of the message But now watch but I personally hear this I personally have heard about you That you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems Now if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me You will be clothed with purple wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you have authority as third ruler in the kingdom Daniel ain't having any of this. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said, keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make its interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and honor and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was like the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whom he wishes. Watch this. Verse 22. This is critical. Pay attention here. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Watch this. Even though you knew all of that. See, what God says is you premeditated this stuff. You knew about it and you still chose to do it. Daniel must have walked in that day and looked around and saw the the tables with all the food all over them. He probably saw the large mass quantities of wine that were just spilt over everyone and over everything. As he walked in there, you can imagine all the the, the stuff that we talked about with the physical immorality that was going on, all these clatterly dressed or maybe even not dressed at all uh, people that were there engaging in these wild, crazy things. Drunken people were just stumbling everywhere. There are the gods that they had just kind of brought out, just kind of laying around and can you imagine Daniel stumbles across somebody and he sees somebody, they've got something in their hand and it looks super familiar to him. And He remembers as a young kid going to the temple and he's seen that before. What is that in that person's hand? Oh no, this is one of the, this is one of the cups from the temple that's in this person's hand. The king himself is in shambles. And he looks behind the king, and there on the wall are these words that are written. And to his his utter, just pure, just heart-filled, just glory to God, he says, I know exactly what that says. Daniel had been walking with God for 80 years. This was like a letter from home. Daniel 14, if you'll look there, Daniel 5 verse 14, it says, now I've heard about you that there's a spirit of God's in you that illumination, insight and x-ray wisdom has been found in you. Illumination is, as you need to understand, that unless the Holy Spirit brings us light from the Word, we will never be able to understand it. Unless the Holy Spirit of God gives us insight into what it means, we will never, ever truly understand this. Unless God gives us through the power of his Holy Spirit wisdom, we won't know what to do with the Word of God. So that's why there's an emphasis that this this one whom the Spirit of God is inside of you, you have to see the Holy Spirit at work here. But verse 17 says that Daniel answered and says, Hey, keep this stuff for yourself, but I'm going to do some expository preaching to you. I'll read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known. And that's exactly what, and I'm not trying to brag, but that's exactly why we do what we do here. We take what God's word says and we try to interpret it to you. That's what we're doing here. We take a text and we draw out its meaning. The word deposit means to put into. The word to exposit means to take out of. So we're just trying to take out the meaning that God put into it and give it to people. And that's what, that's what a good preacher does. That's what Daniel does. You see, Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing what? We're my Bible readers. Faith comes by hearing what? Hearing the word of God. And how will they hear unless they're what? Unless someone sent. So God sends Daniel with the word of God to help convict and confront this man who's claiming that there is no God. And, and he will show Belshazzar his sin and convict him of his sin. But Daniel begins by taking this dude to school. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it there, but he gives him a history lesson, doesn't he? Verses 18 through 21, he says, hey, listen, man, here's what happened to your grandfather. Here's what happened. He, he got all prideful, and God had to humble him, and this whole walking around and eating grass and his nails and his hair. I mean, God did this. Just think about it. That was the history of the previous king. We talked about that last week, so I won't, I won't go anymore, but let's look in verse 22. He says, but you've not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. In other words, you didn't even learn from history. Because those who what? Don't know history or what? See, y'all knew. Thank y'all. Y'all get preaching help today. In other words, you're guilty of premeditated sin. You knew what God had done and that the previous king walked in his pride, but yet you have not humbled your heart. And you knowing all this are throwing a party to mock the living God of Israel. This may be here this morning in this room. You may know what God has spoken to you over and over and over again, but you will not bring yourself in the submission of God. And for some reason, some of us think we're just going to get away from it or get away with it because God hasn't judged me yet. I'd hold on to that word yet. See, then Daniel moves from history to theology. Verse 23, he says, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives and concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and bronze and iron and stone, which you do not see, hear, or understand. That's some theology. Those gods are really false gods. You didn't even know it. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. In other words, Daniel, I, I mean, Belshazzar, don't you, don't you know? The, the very breath that you are breathing right now is controlled by God's hands. Do you know that, theologically speaking, that your very next breath is controlled by the Almighty God? Do you know that breath is not your own? Because I promise you, somebody, somebody in the world right now in this moment is breathing their last. You've been put here for one reason on this earth, and that's to glorify this God. Well, he gives him this history lesson, then he gives him a theology lesson, then he gives him a spelling lesson. Because look in verse 25. This is the inscription that was written out: (laughs) Mani, Mani, Tukul, Aparsin. God has shown you that you're guilty. He spelled it out in a theological lesson for you that should have reminded you of the history lesson God had been given the kingdom. You've committed these premeditated sins. It's in writing for you. You knew this was wrong. You knew that God would judge you. Yet You still exalted yourself against him. He has spoken and now you are guilty. You have just been convicted in the court of God of premeditated sin. But then also I can be guilty of profane sacrilege profane sacrilege, because in verse 23, he says, you've brought out all these these cups, all these vessels, and you've been drinking wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone. You've sinned against the light. You've rejected the word of God and the spirit of God. Then you went on to willfully blaspheme and profane the things of God. And we covered that last week. We talked about how profane and how blasphemous it was to take the things from God's temple and use them to praise another one. But then also I can be guilty of pagan sacrifice. He says, you knew the truth and you turned from it and you blasphemed and mocked the God of that truth. And when you offered those cups in praise to your other God, you made a sacrifice. Beloved, please see the pattern. The Lord sees our sin. He knows all and he contemplates about it. Then he speaks and then he's going to confront our sin. And then he's going to show us and convict us of our sin. And this is all his patience. This is all his mercy. This is all him pleading. This is all him intervening. But if we don't turn and if we don't repent and we ask his forgiveness, there is one step coming. And that is, lastly, the Lord sentences and condemns our sin. See, Daniel then begins to tell the king exactly what the words say and mean. Verses 24 and 25 say these things again. The hand that was sent from him and the inscription was written out. And that's the inscription that was written out. Meni, meni, tukle, parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Meni, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tukle, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. It may have looked like this as we look at this. It may have just looked like that. And if you'll notice... We have to read from the right to the left because that's what Hebrew and Aramaic do. But you need to also understand that that language at that time had no vowels. So this is may have what it looked like, but most likely it probably looked like this next one. May have looked like that. And so what Daniel does is Daniel looks at that. And he says, you know what? Let me supply some vowels for you to understand what's going on. So then it maybe looks like this. But then let's flip it around so that English readers can see it. Daniel gives the meaning. Daniel says, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. In other words, God says, now there's condemnation coming. Let me tell you how condemnation works. First of all, condemnation comes because my favor is spent. Condemnation comes because my favor is spent. He says, "Mani, many. Now, there's emphasis there. And the word "mani" literally means to number. Your kingdom... Your life, it's been numbered from the start. Empires, kings and kings are not determined by man, but by God. Belshazzar, the sand glass of your life has just run out. This is the last night for you, and this is the last night for Babylon because your sins have found you out, and it's payday. You thought you were going to get away with it. Time is up. You've stepped over the line. The appointed time now for your condemnation has come. And the Bible says the same thing in the New Testament in Hebrews 9.27 when it says this, And is as much as is appointed for men to die once. And then after that comes the judgment. It is coming. And he says to him, listen, the condemnation that you're going to face is because your favor has been spent. The time that I have given you for repentance, the time that I have given you to have favor with me, it is over. But then condemnation also comes because I've fallen short. He says, tuckle. Tuckle literally means to weigh. It was was the way they weighed on the scales back in those days when they had two different sides to a scale. It means to be put in that scale, but to be found too light. Your goodness, your morality, your virtues, they've come up short from what God has asked, and you've sinned willfully knowing that. There's a poem that kind of speaks to this. It says, there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. You see, he stepped over that line between God's patience and his wrath when he exalted the gods of Babylon and mocked the God of Israel. And there comes a point in all of our lives when we simply come up short. Romans 3.23 says, all of us have what? Sin and fallen short. We've been weighed We've been weighed against the glory of God. We've been weighed against what God wants, and we come up short. And because of that, the Bible says that because of that, the wages of sin is what? See, condemnation comes because we have fallen short. The time of favor has been spent, but then condemnation also comes because my fate is then sealed. Uparson. Finally, the word uparson or peres in your Bible by the way, Uparson, if you drop the beginning, which is the U, the U simply means and in that language. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and. If you take the I-N off, it's a plural concept. So the I-N is the way of making that word plural. In other words, your kingdom has been divided not just by one people, but by Two the Medes and the Persians. So the word there means to literally, it means to be divided. Plurally, it means to be divided twice. Remember the Medes and the Persians, if you were following with us in in the earlier preaching, they're just 50 miles away and they have gathered to take over Babylon from the north. Well, they're here now. And because he exalted himself and would not humble himself before God, God says judgment has fallen. Because why? Because condemnation means that now your fate is sealed. You see, when God speaks his word, it is final. And whatever God says is going to happen, sin will be judged. The handwriting is on the wall. And let me just tell you how significant this is to prove the point. Jeremiah 50 and 51 tells us a story. Jeremiah 50 and 51 tell us a story. I'm just going to read a few verses to show you that when God says something, it's going to happen. In Jeremiah 50, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, The word of the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through Jeremiah the prophet. Declare and proclaim among the nations. Proclaim it and lift up a standard. Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Baal has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been shattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north. It will make her land an object of horror, and there will be no inhabited in it. Both man and beast have wandered it all. They have gone away. In Jeremiah 51, verse 11, the Bible says this. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it, for it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. (laughs) Probably shouldn't have took that stuff out of the temple, bro. Verse 28 and 29 of 51 says these words. Consecrate the nations against her, the kings of the Medes, their governors, and all their prefects, and every land of dominion, so the land quakes and rise. For the purposes of the Lord against Babylon stand, to make the land of Babylon, the desolation without inhabitants. Verse 57 says, I will make her princes and her wise men what? Huh. Well, that's interesting. Her governors and her prefects and her mighty men, who was there that night? that they may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And then back in 36 and 37, therefore says the Lord, behold, I'm going to plead your case and exact full vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. Well, that's interesting because the water ran right through the city. City Babylon will become a reap of hoons, a horn of jackals, an object of horror and hissing without habitants. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is this. First of all, Babylon, it has been prophesied by Jeremiah in these two chapters that Babylon will be attacked from the north by the king of the Medes. We just read that. Secondly, the city would be well provisioned. In verse 51, verse 26, it talks about that. And we talked about how they had 20 years worth of food, but that's because Jeremiah had already said it would happen. Number three, city would entrust its enormous walls, towers, and high gates. We talked about how big those walls would, And that's why the king's throwing a party, knowing that the enemy's outside, because he has this false sense of security. Number four, the city would be taken by a clever strategy. It would be caught in a snare. And we talked about last week how while he was in there partying up, the Medes and the Persians came and blocked off the river so that then they could walk through it at night, and then they just came in and took over. The successful strategy would be linked to the city's water supply. Specifically, we just read that God would dry her fountains up, and that's what God did. The scheme would be connected with the flow of the Euphrates through the Babylon. The passages would be taken by surprise, and then the reeds would be set on fire. Verse 32 of 51 talks about how they would set it on fire, and that's exactly what they did. At the critical time, a feast would be in progress, which all the nobles and notables would be in attendance That's where they were at. That's what they were doing. And then verse 57 talks about the drunkenness of these people would lead to their slaughter. Jeremiah has prophesied this to happen to an exact T. And what I am trying to tell you is, if God was exactly right, a thousand, two thousand years ago, saying to Babylon, before it ever happened, that this is what's going to happen to you, if you don't humble yourself, judgment from God on our sin will happen. If it happened exactly like God said it did back then, I can promise you that it's going to happen today, just like God said it's going to happen. So verse 30 and 32 tell us, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was what? He was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. That happened in history. You can go read it the day of Tishri, 539, or really our October 11th or 12th, at night there was a feast, and there was incredible drunkenness, and men were focusing on women. Cyrus, the king that was outside, took men and placed them where the river entered the city and where it ran out. So where it came in and where it ran out. And others he placed where the Rephrates kind of made this huge swamp, And so he builds this big canal, which he can divert the Euphrates away from the city. And he tells his soldiers, he says, listen, when you see the river recede, they were to march in without ever being observed because everybody was too drunk to know what was happening. And they went in and they killed Belshazzar, and Babylon fell that night because those who have sinned against God, your fate is sealed because the wages of sin is still death but please hear me. Once when Calvin Coolridge was vice president presiding over the Senate, an altercation arose between two senators. The tempers flared and one senator told the other senator to go straight to, that's what he told him, just go straight there. The offended senator stormed from his seat, and marched down the aisle and stood before Mr. Coolidge, who was silently leafing through a book. And he said this, he said, Mr. Vice President, did you hear what that person said to me? And Calvin Coolidge calmly looked up from his book and he said, you know, I've been looking through the rule book and you don't have to go there. See, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, Pastor Steve, this is cool and everything, but a a, a severed hand that appears and calls a divine message into a plaster wall, well, first of all, that seems a little far-fetched. And second, how is that relevant to me? I mean, if I saw a floating hand at a keg party that carved me a message, I think I'd probably pay attention too. See, that's where you need to see the bigger point of the story. There's some divine imagery at work here that you need to pick up on because this wasn't the first time the finger of God had appeared in Scripture. See, the first time was back at Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, when the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian magicians in Pharaoh's Court are unable to replicate the miracles of God that, that God was doing through Moses. For the first couple of plagues, they were able to mimic what Moses had done. Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake. And so these magicians, they had this trick little rod where they could make it look like it had power. But then in Exodus 8, Moses raised his stakes. He threw his staff into the dust, and the dust poofed, and it turned into gnats. And from there, gnats multiplied and covered the land, and the Egyptian magicians, they couldn't duplicate that. See, creating an optical illusion where it looks like a staff turns into a snake is one thing, but creating gnats out of thin air, that's something they just couldn't fake. And so they went to Pharaoh, and they told Pharaoh privately, we read these words in Exodus eight nineteen. The soothsayer priest said to Pharaoh, this is the what? the finger of God. See, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. But see, the second place we see the finger of God is when Moses gave the 10 commandments. Moses tells us in Exodus 31 that these commandments were literally etched into stone by the finger of God. So what that means is, is the finger of God indicates a power that only God has and direct communication from God himself which means that Jesus' claim to be the very finger of God then is super significant. You see, Jesus did miracles that no one else had ever done. He healed the blind. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He even raised himself from the dead. And in Luke eleven twenty, 20, we read this. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said these miracles proved the finger of God was at work among them. He claimed that to hear his voice was to hear the voice of God directly. He told Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Romans 12, the apostle said that God, through Christ, engraved God's law on our hearts. Just like the Daniel 5 thing where God wrote His, his word on the plaster. You see, by the Holy Spirit, God changes and brings things into our lives that only he can make. My point is this. The finger of God has already written on the wall of your heart. He has appeared to you. He has been verified through prophecy by miracles, and most of all, his resurrection, and says to us, I have spoken. In Jesus, we're given a message just as serious as what Belshazzar received. So are you going to listen? Listen here. Let me offer you a conclusion for two different types of people in the room, and we'll close. For those of you who are not fully surrendered Christians or followers of Jesus, I have one message for you, and then I have a message for those of you who are. Many, many, listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I need you to know many, many, your days have been numbered. Belshazzar got a rare gift. He was told the day he was going to die, but you may not know that. But death is just as certain because it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Your days have been numbered. Tuckle, you have been measured and found deficient. All of us, when weighed on the divine scales of God's justice, are going to come up deficient. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of old, concluded his message on Daniel 5 saying this. He said, divine scales. These scales are true to a hair. One grain of sand will tip them. On the one side of the scale I would put, I would have every man put himself into the only one commandment, thou shalt love the Lord, thy God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he said, I invite any man who flatters himself that he has no need of God's mercy, no need of washing in the blood of Jesus, no need of atonement, of forgiveness of sin, to put himself in those scales and see if he just measures up to that one command to love God with all that they have. Oh, my friends, if we did but weigh ourselves against the very first commandment of the law, we would have to acknowledge ourselves hopelessly guilty. But then as we begin to drop in the weight of the other commandments until the whole ten are there, there's not a man under the scope of heaven who has anything less to say, but he is woefully found wanting before God. For all have sinned and fallen short. The wages of sin is death. And one day we will give an account to an absolutely holy and perfect God for every unkind thing, every stray thought, every dishonest action that we've taken. Our days are numbered. We have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Some of you in the room may say, I don't like a God of judgment like this. See, don't you see even right now he's reaching out to you in Mercy. Don't you see even right now through, through what I'm doing and through what this church is doing, he's, he's offering you hope? I mean, how, how has he already filled your life with warning after warning before you showed up this morning? God doesn't want you to die and have to be condemned and pay for your sin. He's telling you now so that you can repent and you can see the, the fingerwork of Jesus in your life convicting your heart. And that leads me to this last point. The Lord can save from and clear all sin. I mean, the Lord Jesus can save from and clear all sin. You see, the core of Jesus' message is that you and I can never be good enough to get to heaven. We can never be righteousness to tip the scales in our favor. So what Jesus did is he offered substitution. He took divine judgment in your place. Jesus did not come to urge you to be a better person. He came to take your place under divine judgment because you couldn't be a good enough person. He lived the life that you were supposed to live, a perfect life. Then he died the death that you and I were condemned to die, paying the price for our sin. And so when you receive him onto the scales, God puts the righteousness of Christ in your place. And on the other side, he takes away any bit of condemnation that came from your sin. So there's nothing left on the scales but the righteousness that comes through Jesus. That means if you are in Christ on the scales of God's justice, you are now no longer found weighed and wanting. Nothing. Nothing in all eternity could tip the scales of justice against you if you are in Jesus. That's the conclusion that I want you to come to. If you never have decided to follow Jesus, this is why you should. Because he's a good and awesome Savior. He takes sin seriously, but he offers grace abundantly. But for those of you maybe you are here this morning and you have, Daniel wrote this book for the Israelites who were discouraged in Babylon. It's easy to get discouraged in Babylon because if I'm reading America right, everywhere I look, it looks like the Babylonians are in charge. I mean, we see them getting away with all kinds of blasphemy, injustice, cruelty. They sin with impunity. And so we may be asking, has God forgotten us? I mean, it's been 2,000 years since he was here. Is God gone Forever. You see, there were Israelites there like Daniel who lived their whole lives under captivity, and many were wondering, is God still in charge? Does God even remember us? And this chapter is a resounding yes to that question. The days of wickedness are numbered, and the true king will return soon, and he will restore justice and take us home to the promised land to spend eternity with him. And my hope, and hopefully your hope is in that day, my hope is in the king who's coming back. And that gives me the strength not only to survive as an exile, but to shine as an exile in the land where Babylon now rules. The king's coming, and this ain't all there is. So we just keep shining for Jesus. Now, Jeremy, if you and the team would come, I want to invite you this morning to stand to your feet as they're coming, and would you pray with me? And then if you simply need to respond to anything that we have talked about this morning, if the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, And you need to be forgiven of your sin. Or you need to pray about maybe becoming a member of this church. Or you want us to pray over you or anything that's going on in your life. I ask you to come. There will be men and women here to receive you. But would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, bring illumination. Bring enlightenment and bring wisdom to know what to do in this moment. Bring us to Jesus, and I pray it in his powerful, holy, awesome name.